Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting. With me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is the fourth in our series of podcasts titled Optimism with Caution. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry on what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks forward to refocusing on a post-COVID world while also adapting to a post-Brexit digital era. Today's topic, mergers and acquisitions in asset management, a world of two tales. As a follow-up on our episode on new asset classes and products, we are exploring further what is prompting the wealth and asset management industry towards a binary or barbell model of giant versus niche players. What is the trend we are observing? Where do we stand today? Who are the players on this world stage? And maybe most importantly, what are the implications from an investor perspective and more broadly from a stakeholder perspective? Today, we are very lucky to uh, be joined over Zoom by two senior industry participants whose careers in the wealth and asset management sector were almost tailor-made for this podcast. First off, we have Ed Moyson, financial journalist, associate editor Ignites Europe of the FT Group, and a former fund researcher and history in the fund asset management sector. So uh, good morning, Ed. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for having me. Well, that's a pleasure. Also, we're lucky to have Antoine Dupont Madinier, who is a managing director and lead of the investment banking and Muir Gordon with the focus on wealth and asset management. Good morning, Antoine. Morning, Chris. Pleasure to be with you. Before we sort of go into the main body, it would be great if you could give me a little introduction into your career as an elevator pitch, if you will. So, Ed, perhaps you can give us your story first and what is it that you're passionate about in the wealth and asset management sector? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a journalist covering the asset management industry for Ignite Europe. That's a daily news service just looking at the business of asset management in Europe. I've been doing that for about five years, previous to which I actually came from within the industry. So I spent a few years at an asset management company doing sort of uh, market competitor analysis, prior to which I worked for part of what was then Reuters, again, working in fund research. So stretching back about 20 years or so. And what am I passionate about in the industry? Well, I, recently, I've begun to write a book about the industry. So right now, that's what's getting me particularly excited is getting stuck into that, which I'm going to be working on. Yeah, very exciting. It's my first chance to, to plug a book. So uh, we can expect some uh, scandals in there, some revelations, <laughs> or, and a chapter on M&A. I think touching on M&A, hopefully. But yeah, I mean, part of it is sort of an introduction to the industry. Part of the audience is supposed to be sort of business schools and students and so on but also going beyond that and yeah giving some of my thoughts on where the industry needs to be focusing a little bit more maybe where it needs to be improving brilliant look forward to that coming out and Antoine moving over to you you've had a long career again most in the wealth and asset management industry how did you get to where you are and what is it that excites you maybe about M&A thanks Chris so I'm indeed a currently a managing director with Penrill Gordon I cover the financial services sector broadly in particular the asset management and wealth management sectors but also the fund admin and in the fintech sectors to some extent most of my career I worked at a, a number of investment banks but I've also worked for an asset manager and I've worked for a family office owned entity that focused on acquiring stakes in asset management companies. Over the past 20 years, I've engaged in a range of MA deals by size and types for asset managers, whether traditional, long only alternatives, both on the liquid and illiquid front. Uh, and I've worked on a number of IPOs. What is my passion about MA in the asset management industry? I guess it's being at the core of a firm strategy, it's being involved in shaping the sector. 
One of the interesting attributes of the asset management industry, it, it is a lot of founders are still at the helm. There's a lot of manager slash owners at the top, and it really brings a different perspective when you engage with them. I guess the asset manager sector spends a lot of time looking at other sectors, but it's not the sort of classic M&A sector. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about how that sort of fits with the world. Now, if you're familiar with our podcast, I normally ask a fun teaser question to, for you to sort of mull over while or perhaps someone else is speaking. I was looking for a literary equivalent inspired by Ed's uh, new book. So given there aren't any novels about the financial services sector that I can think of, I sort of thought, well, films are the, the closest thing. And obviously, if we're talking M&A, there's only one film that is really worth talking about, which is Wall Street. But obviously, uh, there's a, lot, a few others out there, Margin Call, The Big Short, another favourite of mine. So the question is, who would play you in a film bio biopic of your city life? Moving into the M&A topic, there's obviously... A lot of headlines about mergers activity last year and the fact that there's only an, an expectation this, this is going to continue in terms of consolidation, reacting to anything from fee pressures to distribution and capacity. So maybe you could give us an overview of what you've seen of the, the big deals in the recent years for the listeners who maybe not be as familiar as you are. Yeah, I mean, certainly sitting in Europe, there's been a couple of announcements recently, which I think is why this is staying in the spotlight. Columbia Threadneedle buying BMO, the Canadian firm's European asset management arm. Columbia having merged with Threadneedle, now looking to expand its presence, not just organically. And also the other big recent one is Amundi's announcement that it's planning to acquire Lixor. And I think that's interesting in two French firms getting together, maybe doesn't set the world on fire of itself, but Amundi make it pretty clear in that acquisition of its ambitions to try, because it's got a long way to go, and compete more with BlackRock's ETF business, obviously Lixor having been an early mover in the ETF space. Prior to those, over the past year or so, most of the big moves have been in American, so obviously that, that has an influence in what's happening in the European industry, but they are primarily US-driven, so Wells Fargo selling its asset management business to private equity, Morgan Stanley taking over Eaton Vance, and Franklin, I guess the biggest of all, Franklin Templeton taking over Leg Mason. To varying degrees, that has some influence in what's happening in the asset management industry in Europe. Primarily, this seems to be the US headquartered, and the dynamics are probably driven by aspects of what's happening in the US industry. But prior to that, last year, there was Jupiter taking on Merion. I guess it has a quite high profile because it's listed in the UK, but not a massive firm. And Merion was a firm which having trouble with outflows. So I guess this sort of dual function of trying to build scale and uh, turn things around. Prior to that, I think what's happening in Vesco is maybe worth mentioning. They bought Oppenheimer funds in 2019, Guggenheim's ETF business in 2018, and Source ETF in 2017. So again, that's traditionally an active manager expanding in the ETF space in recent years. And then to round off the picture, I guess on the big, big deals, a big year was 2017 again, Janus merging with Henderson, Standard Life taking over Aberdeen and uh, Amundi buying Pioneer from Unicredit. There's a significant amount of activity and there's an ETF passive active dimension to that. Yeah, I guess as a journalist, you, the big moves are the ones that are eye-catching. So yes. we focus on those a lot. Yeah, I suppose the, the open question, which hopefully we'll have a chance to explore, is, is how much of a change that has for the industry as a whole. But, but certainly, absolutely, that gives you a flavour of the types of moves that, that are in the headlines. Antoine, if we turn to you, those Ed's pointed out the, sort of the headlines and things that attract a journalist to a story, as having spent two decades focusing on this sector, do you think that the deals landscape has changed? Is this a genuine sort of 
uh, restructuring of the industry, a consolidation? And how do you see those trends emerging? Do they match the headlines or, or is that just journalists overblowing the situation? I think the theme or the deals that, that have mentioned are part of the ongoing consolidation that has been going on for for many years, several decades, and and indeed they are making the headlines. They are the most visible ones. That that theme has not stopped. I mean, it's driven by a number of factors. There's the active-passive debate. There's the ongoing pressure on costs going up and revenue margins going down. So I I guess what has changed in in the consolidation theme over the last decade compared to the previous decade is that maybe the deals are getting even bigger because obviously the firms being merged are bigger in nature and yep. size. I guess what's interesting when you compare the asset management industry is that that theme has continued post the GFC, probably slightly different for other uh, subsectors within the financial services sector. And I have the banking sector in mind, but there are other many themes driving M&A, probably slightly less visible, but they're very important. Another one would be the within the alternative asset management industry, the shift to, to private markets. And that's probably the difference you would make between illiquid alternatives and liquid alternatives. Two decades ago, there was a lot of interest for liquid alternatives, hedge fund strategies. Over the last decade, deals have shifted around illiquid alternatives or private equity strategies real estate, private debt, infrastructure. So we've seen a lot of activity in in that space. Another important theme that has driven a lot of M&A is the minority stake buying game. I guess it was 20 years ago, quite niche, and it's gone mainstream over the past 10 years. I think there's a rumor $25 billion of dry powder, uh, which is still available and to be deployed. So for those who aren't familiar, so the minority stake is where you're buying a, literally buying a minority stake in in a company, and that is your fund strategy as opposed to completely a diversified liquid portfolio of assets. Exactly. And and what we've seen over the past 10 years is a rise of dedicated buyers in that strategy. And they have themselves raised a lot of capital. And that has certainly helped creating is the market already existed, but it certainly has helped making more of a market than there was before of buyers and sellers of, of minority stakes. So these two themes, I think, have fueled a lot of M&A activity. And I guess one which is sort of adjacent is what's going on in terms of IPOs, because even though obviously it's not M&A, but the objective of an IPO can sometimes fulfill the, the objectives of what you're trying to do via M&A. And I would say, again, two decades ago, we've seen a lot of managers, independent managers, IPO, both in, in the UK and in the US. Over the last decade, there's been slightly less activity. Uh, there's been foresight that IPO at the beginning of the year and Investec, that was more of a sub-IPO, so quite different. So clearly it might have been impacted by the fact that over the last decade, the minority stake players might have positioned themselves as an alternative to an IPO for managers who wanted to just sell a minority stake. And what will be interesting is to see what will happen with with SPACs because they have raised a lot of capital and they might uh, lure a number of asset managers into going down that route. That is actually one deal I have in mind at the moment, which sort of brings three themes, at least in, in, in one situation, which is Dial, which is a minority stake buyer that yeah. is merging with All Rock, which is one of their affiliates, and which is reversing in Altamar, which is a SPAC. So in terms of these, the theme around the sort of private markets, be they liquid, SPACs, minority stake, is that what is driving the costs? Or when you say cost pressures are going up, because typically with the introduction of technology, you'd expect there to be some downward pressure on costs, or is cost just we're paying fund managers too much um, to manage money. What is that cost driver? Is that related to 
the move into new markets seeking better returns? But from my point of view, I guess what's increasing cost is a lot regulatory costs and, and risk monitoring yeah. and governance. These are the areas which are certainly increasing within asset management uh, business models. And Ed, I guess sort of moving to you, do you see this as the motivation for sort of the consolidation? Yeah, but the point you made is you're right. I was nodding when Antoine was talking about private markets. You, you can't talk to a large asset management company without them saying, of course, we're building our private markets capability. They're desperate to have another means of generating returns for their clients. And unless an asset manager has had a private markets capability for a long time already, they're also quite honest in saying, this isn't a capability we can build. This is a capability we would have to buy. And they'd definitely be expecting more acquisitions in, in that area as a result if, if firms are wanting to build up those capabilities. So that brings us nicely to what is the buyer's motivation for buyers and sellers. So, and we talk about buying capability. I know is if you're buying capability in private markets, which we sort of alluded to, I guess there's this question around ESG. If we maybe look at uh, Federated Hermes, maybe there's only a, a couple of players, so that isn't a theme, but it's theme around buying capability. Is that the motivation or is it around distribution? So Antoine, I go in terms of your clients and, and targets, what is the motivation for the buyers and the sellers? They're multiple and they will vary from one deal to another quite greatly. From the buyer's perspective, we've touched on the fee pressure and, and, and the rising costs, which is pushing a number of players to build larger businesses and achieve economies of scale. The acquiring capabilities is clearly a, a big motivation. And I guess what makes private markets different to sort of the more liquid markets is the time it takes to build a track record in, in a capability. In some cases, when you think about real estate, private equity, private debt infrastructure, it would take many years, several vintages of, of funds to achieve a track record that you can market. And for some firms, some buyers, developing those internally for maybe 7, 10, 15 years is not an interesting alternative. They're much better off acquiring an independent manager that has that capability and that they can sort of day one plug and play distribute the other networks. So that is certainly a big theme, a big driver in, in private markets. In terms of the sellers, again, they will vary depending on the deal, but succession capital, monetization, liquidity is often a, a decision for independent managers to sell themselves. Distribution actually is probably more a, a seller motivation than the buyer motivation. Some independent managers might be very good at managing, but let's so as distributing and they can see the value of being plugged into a, a broader distribution channel as being part of a larger platform. Uh, and I guess another theme, which is again connected to the private markets, is that these private market strategies sometimes consume seed capital or anchor capital. And if you're able to launch a new fund with some seed or anchor capital, you have a multiplier effect on the total fund you can raise. Some of those independent managers do not have that uh, seed or anchor capital. They might find it teaming up with the right strategic partner. So that sort of acceleration capital can be another motivation for sellers, for independent managers to sell themselves. The, the track record piece in terms of rather than going for organic growth, the driver between M&A, actually an industry which you would consider is there's not a lot of overhead or fixed costs. And rather than just buying a team and moving a team into your organisation, actually there is a huge fixed cost in terms of building up that track record. Is that what differentiates this industry from other M&A industries? 
To some extent, yes. I, I think in any industry, you, you can do team lift-outs to accelerate development as an alternative to, to being purely organic. But as I said, in the case of private market strategies, a, a track record that you can sell to investors sometimes can only be achieved over maybe a decade. And again, acquiring is the, the quicker way to compress that 10-year into one year. Just, you, you briefly mentioned ESG. I, I don't know if that's something we we're going to come on to later, but I think that is an interesting point. I remember a couple of years ago, speaking to a few M&A experts, not Antoine, sadly, I didn't know him at the time, but uh, who, who were saying that it's logical and you would expect that some of these smaller ESG as sort of a catch-all term, ESG, environmental social governance experts, that those smaller firms were likely to be scooped up before long. If that's been happening, it's certainly not very apparent to me. I think Federated Hermes is a, is a very interesting example of where a US firm has absolutely gone fishing across the pond to do exactly that. It gives them a further scale in Europe, but I would imagine much more so is Federated Hermes' reputation and, and expertise on stewardship and ESG capabilities. I just one other thought as well on the cost element. I, I think it just so it's clear in my mind, I think there's two elements here. There's one, the operational costs of a business and why you would want to acquire another firm. But also there's the fee pressure, i.e. pressure on fees of mutual funds. And that is a driver of consolidation as well, that active managers are feeling the pressure of the move into passive funds. And that has implications for their business because they therefore have a threat of having lower flows. And maybe this is something we'll explore more, but I, I do think that's a very different dynamic in the US and Europe. And in, in Europe, you see much more ability of active asset managers to withstand that pressure and continue to pull in flows, whereas that's, that's a much tougher proposition in the US. It's just that has almost become a slightly sort of almost existential threat for an active manager sitting in the US who have US equity capabilities. In Europe, it's a threat which someone like Columbia Threadneedle is responding to, but it's not on the same uh, level. I know we've discussed this before, Ed, but it, it, do you, although we're, we're talking about a lot of M&A activity, do you consider this to be dis, a threat to a medium-sized sort of generalist active fund manager? Or, or actually, is the pie big enough? Is the fact that assets are growing at high single digits every year? Yeah, I, I think part of what you're touching on there comes back to this, something that Morgan Stanley were writing about 15, 20 years ago, is the barbellization of the industry of a move to massive firms on the one side and small specialists on the other, which on the face of it seems very sensible. But I think it's worth putting forward the argument that whilst the underlying analysis that they were doing for that research seems sound, I think the conclusion is pretty superficial. And, you know, it's just not really happened. So certainly when I'm looking at the European funds industry, it just doesn't really happen in terms of people as a result of that barbellization that the moves at the two ends that therefore the people in the middle get squeezed. There are yeah. lots of medium-sized firms in Europe that are doing very well. Does that mean that if you're a medium-sized firm with funds that aren't very good, you're going to do badly? Well, yes, you are going to do badly, but that's a reflection of, of the dynamics of you not having very good performance. It's not to do with this, your scale. But again, that doesn't mean that they want to get bigger to increase their revenues and protect themselves from the rise of passives. I think sometimes one would be slightly sceptical with the way that that idea is repeated ad nauseum, which is not to say that some of the underlying themes they've picked up on are not perfectly valid. It's the sort of the conclusion. So it sounds like there, there is room for all. And that brings me on to my next topic, which is really is there's another pressure in the industry, potentially, I don't know whether you'll agree with this, Antoine, is we talk about fintech and, and even big tech in terms of whether the likes of Google, Amazon will ever enter this in, industry in terms of distribution, given their 
capability around technology, they're, they're sort of huge sort of cash piles, balance sheets, which could finance this kind of entry. Is this something that could, again, change the M&A landscape? There's a couple of things going on. I, I think there's obviously fintech mirrors the entire financial services industry. So it could be broken down in a number of subsectors, just like the financial services sector is. We haven't seen fintech companies very much or a lot of them disrupting the, the asset management industry or disrupting the investment management process. They've been more focused on the middle office, back office, sometimes distribution aspects of the asset management industry more than the manufacturing in the big scheme of things. So that's where we've seen most of the activity, I would say. With respect to fintech, it's been for the past few years more a capital raising game than an M&A game. I mean, obviously in the last two years, we've seen a few fintech companies merging or trying to merge. Or, or some of them IPOing, and I guess it, it just shows that the industry is is maturing. So eventually we'll get there. And I guess if we talk about distribution and getting in at the end of that value chain, if you're Facebook or Google, Amazon, you've got billions of end users, and okay, they're small, potentially small retail clients. If you're, if you're first person who has contact with a client, that end of the value chain is where all the value is going to be. Ed, have you heard anything on the news stories that would imply there's a move in this direction? I mean, in the States, it's certainly see more uh, the BlackRock and Vanguard getting more involved in using technology to be pulling in clients and so on, either through stakes they've taken in firms or Vanguard developing there. They've got much more of a capability to be touching the end client and, and offering advice, which they're big de- developing in the UK now as well. So there's that element of using technology to attract clients. Often you hear asset managers say, well, the likes of Google isn't going to get involved in asset management because it's a heavily regulated industry and they wouldn't want to manage funds. Obviously, the Google threat is to subvert the whole asset management industry and go direct to the client without using an investment fund. Potentially, I don't know, sucking in money from Reddit and directing it into a particular stock or into a particular someone else's fund or something like that. But that's, I guess, is the threat. It's just to not use mutual funds at all or ETFs at all. So far, what we do see as a sort of a tech sort of threat is the rise of robo-advisors. But in Europe anyway, the amount of money they've raised is small. And generally, they don't replace the asset manager. They act as the intermediary, which then feeds money into ETFs or to a lesser extent, mutual funds. So if it's that sort of development that we see, then that's not really a threat to uh, yeah. asset managers at all. That's a, yeah, it's a way of, of attracting different clients, often with smaller pools. Of money. At the moment, it's a small element of the industry. And it, it's if anything, it's going to grow the pie, but it's not seen as a, a driver for defensive M&A for those. Which is not to say that firms aren't ramping up their technology capabilities in, in other ways, I suppose. You know, BlackRock's Aladdin, Amundi trying to counter that. Uh, recently, they've been talking about building up their capabilities there. I, I guess that's slightly different. That's using technology in-house to help their clients. I, I guess it doesn't obviously have an M&A implication. So I think that we've done a pretty good uh, whistle-stop tour of the motivations, potential new entrants and how the the landscape has changed over the last 15 years i guess maybe the thing that we we could sort of finish on is culture we talk a lot about cultures of organizations and value-driven organizations in these sort of merger plans do you think there's any clash which again prevent some mnas based on experience of how american and british or even american and european asset managers successfully merge i don't know antoine if you have any thoughts on that some cultures work better together than others. There's some 
business models that are fungible and others which are not. The, the complexity of the, the asset management industry, which it, it, it is large, still fragmented in many ways and, and, and global. So you can always pick one example and, and a counter example somewhere else. So I think the other thing obviously that matters a lot is that the, the merger is the first step and it has to be done on the right terms. But for it to be successful, there's a lot of things that are going on post-merger, integration, and with a number of external factors, which are hard to predict, but will nevertheless have an impact on the success or not of, of the M&A. As, a, as someone who's putting these deals together, is that a big consideration for you as an advisor? When I look at the, the different cultures and the intangibles, I don't think this deal will necessarily work. Is that something that is discussed or is it you leave that for the managers of the firm to sort of assess whether their cultures will match? It is being discussed, but frankly, the the buyers and the sellers are aware of it sort of themselves. And as you go through an M&A process, there is a form of a dating or due diligence, which helps establish if there's a fit or not, so that you don't make that sort of discovery when you come to the altar. On cultures within the industry, I mean, do you see that as a factor? Clearly, there are big firms that are saying, in principle, we as a firm would like to be acquiring someone else, but corporate culture plays a big part in deciding whether we actually really want to go through with it, because some of the deals that have gone through, I mean, doesn't matter whether a journalist likes it or not, if the market doesn't like it or not, as an impact. And I think sometimes the market sees that once the deal has gone through, you don't see a significant change in the way a business is operating and culture sometimes to be a, you know, a significant part of that. This line is not infrequently mentioned of culture eat strategy for breakfast. I think when it comes to M&A asset managers, I think certainly when the, on the face of it, they certainly seem to be conscious of that and of the problems that happen post-merger if they've actually made a mistake on just how compatible the two corporate cultures are. I just sort of take a summary of the key points that I've, I've taken away from this amazing insight you've, you've both given. I think we've confirmed that there's ongoing activity. As Antoine said, that's actually just a theme that's been going on for the last 10, 15 years, I guess, with the inevitable conclusion that deal size is a thing that is increasing, I guess, as the, the players who are consolidating are getting bigger and bigger. And then I guess that second point is the big drivers, buyers' motivation is that move into private markets. And we sort of listed those from minority stakeholders, fact, real estate funds, all those illiquid assets which weren't there 15 years ago. And then we also talked about sort of track record and the fact that actually buying a track record is a, is a lot easier than organically raising that over a long, a long run-in. And then I guess it's sort of we talked about distribution and the fact that maybe the fintech fangs is, is something that isn't going to be causing a defensive consolidation or disruption just yet. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for, for your time on that, but I'm not going to let you go without telling me who is going to play you in a biopic. Mm. So I, I, I'll go to you first. Do you have an answer for me? I do. I, just, just as a means to get my wife to watch the film, I would suggest Damien Lewis. That might draw her in. Excellent choice. And, of course, he's got experience in this industry. That's something like a hedge fund manager, but there you go. I think, wise choice. Antoine. Damien Lewis has taken. Who are you going to have? I'm really struggling with an answer. I mean, to start with, do I deserve a biopic? <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. And maybe you ask me the question in 20 years, my career is not over. Maybe the next 20 years will deserve a biopic. Maybe Jean Dujardin. That can be your, or default is Brad Pitt, if you can't think of an answer. Guys, thank you very much for taking your time out today and demystifying the real drivers and motivation behind consolidation in the industry. And I think our listeners will find that incredibly useful. So thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. 
to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation and what has, I think you'll agree, been a fascinating insight into the wealth asset management M&A landscape and hopefully gives you some clarity on what the industry might look like in the coming years. Uh, we look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Algamy Consulting and yourselves in the next of our series of podcasts on the theme of optimism with caution in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us or have any questions, would even like to be part of our next podcast in a series of optimism with caution, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn, Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.